Away we go. Jesus is alive. This is resurrection morning. This is the day we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we've been studying week by week from the book of Hebrews. So you might think, well, Rob will take a break this morning. It's boring, that Hebrews. He'll take a break and he'll preach about Easter or something. Well, we're up to chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews. And I think, apart from reading the actual passion story in the Gospels, there is not a more appropriate chapter for the resurrection morning than Hebrews chapter 8. So that's what we're going to do. That is what we're going to do. The passion verses... Obviously, we, we, we think about them, and maybe we've been thinking about them at home in the four Gospels. They tell us again, if we read them now, they tell us about the story of Jesus in the garden, you know, where he sweated great drops of blood, praying, interceding, preparing his soul, preparing his heart to go um, for what was next. We read about how they spat upon him and beat him and tore the flesh from his back with a cruel whip with lots of tails and little bits of lead weaved into the end of every one. And we'd read about how they forced a crown of thorns. And don't think rose thorns, if you've been to Africa, which a lot of people have come from Africa, the thorns are about that long. They're like little steel spears, you know. And they forced them on his head, and his head's pouring with blood. And he's in agony, and they nailed him to an old wooden cross. And they watched him die in agony. They watched him die. And then we'd read about how they placed him in the tomb. And they covered the entrance with a huge stone. And they put guards around so those disciples couldn't come and pinch him in the night and say anything had happened to him. And they couldn't steal his body. And then we'd read about how in the morning the tomb was open. The stone was rolled away. And his, even his, his grave clothes were neatly folded in the corner. He's organized his Jesus. He doesn't even go to hell to fight the demons and to let the captives free. But he doesn't, he folds his grave clothes first. He'd have made his bed if he'd had one. Because he's in control. Completely and totally in control. And they came to look at him and all he saw was this big vast open door. And he's not there. Why? Because he's here. He's risen. He's alive. And I'm excited. Anyway, I hope you're excited. Yeah, and then we'd read how he appeared to the women first. Isn't that funny? Women. Women are so much more susceptible to, to, to the love of Jesus, aren't they? So much more understanding, so much more sensitive and spiritual, I think, anyway, than most guys. You know, what we need is some guys to stand up and be real men. Because Jesus was a real man. He was a tough man, a strong man. He wasn't care, didn't care what they said about him. He didn't care, you know, if, if he thought he was strange or any of that stuff. You think I'm strange. Do I care? No, I'm not bothered. Not bothered, right? You can think what they like. Jesus is my Lord. God first. Family second. Business third. That's my life. Jesus is alive this morning. You know, anyway, so we're going to go into the book of Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to find out why he's still alive. What's the point of all that suffering? Is it going to change our lives? It's changed the lives of millions down the centuries. But is it going to change our lives? So we're going to carry on. I was told recently, actually by one of our leaders, that some of the people in church think that the book of Hebrews is just 
for the Jews, and it's not really for us New Testament Christians. Now, I don't know if anyone thinks that or not here. I don't know. It wasn't from here that they told me. Um, but I can't imagine why they'd feel that way. But if you do, and if you're inclined to switch off and think, oh, no, before we give Hebrews a miss today, before we talk about something else, it's Easter. Where's my egg? <laughs> if that's what you're thinking, repent. <laughs> that's it. I mean, repent, because it's a cause for repentance. Because unless you're already perfect, unless you've got nothing to learn, you know, unless you're already sinless, and I don't come under any of them categories, by the way, not a bit, it's still for you. And the worst thing we can do is what it actually said earlier on in the book of Hebrews, harden your heart and become unteachable. Because if you're unteachable, that's the end of your journey. If you can't learn anything new, you might as well go home. But where's home? That's the question. You know, so don't be unteachable. Christians need to repent. Not once. We repent when we're born again. Of course we do. But we've entered into a life of repentance constantly, keeping short accounts with Jesus. You can't just tick a box and think, oh, that's me. I'm going to heaven now. No, we've got to live a Christian life. And we've got to live a life that's drawing us ever closer, being changed from glory into glory. And one day we'll come to the end of the journey and hopefully we'll hear the words and there's no guarantee and there's no promise unless it's true because Jesus won't cheat you but if he says well done good and faithful servant enter in you know you did good but you don't need to work to do good you just need to stay close stay close anyway Romans 5 8 tells a story about that it's a lovely story I think Romans 5 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then. So how can there be much more then than Christ dying for us? Well, that's what it says. I didn't write it. Paul did. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, that's the second time he said it, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we were born again by his death, but he now lives in us and the power of God that lives in us, the same spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in us. And if we walk the pathway through the life, we're being saved. We're being saved. It's called sanctification now, but we are being changed from glory into glory. So we were reconciled, born again, or converted or justified, whatever, whatever word you want to use by the death of Christ. But he ever lives. He's alive right now. And his life in us is doing something. This is my body, but it's his life. And he's doing something magnificent in all of those who live for him. And that's what we're going to discover in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, in the last few chapters of Hebrews, the writer's gone to a great length to tell us about the old priesthood under Aaron, how it wasn't able to save us. It wasn't really much use at all, to be honest. Um, that a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek was needed. 
Now, God always knew it was needed. Melchizedek was introduced way before the law was given. God always knew. But it was introduced in a, to Abram, but then resurrected for us in the book of Hebrews. So the first verse of chapter 8 sets it all up nicely. And it really says what Steppy says before. Here is the main point. She said, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. I mean, just love that, the whole point. We have a high priest. That's the whole point. And he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven. He isn't just sitting there relaxing, you know, chilling out. Oh, I've done it now, finished. No, he's got a purpose there. He's doing stuff. He's our high priest. He's interceding for us there. That's his ministry now. Now, just go back to what it was then. Just remember that the time this letter was written. Now, I say written. I don't think it was actually written. I think it was a sermon. I think it was either one or, or a series of sermons, and somebody was scribbling it down in shorthand. They did have shorthand then, right? And we get the transcript in our Bibles, you know, because if you want the transcript of this, you can have it. It's dead easy to do that. You know, or any of my sermons that I've ever preached, I've got hundreds of them. You can have the transcript if you want it. And one day somebody might get all my transcripts and put them in a book. And it's, oh, he wrote the book. But I didn't write the book. I preached the sermons and the transcripts were there. So I think that's what, what, what it is. But anyway, it was delivered, wasn't it, one way or another. So by the time it was delivered, or at the time it was delivered, there was a functioning temple and a high priest. And Levites and all the works and services that go on in the temple. And the Jews who were not believers, the Jews who'd stuck to Judaism, would have been pointing fingers and asking questions of the Jews who'd actually become believers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? The world does it to us now. It wouldn't be any different then. You know, they were attacking their faith. And were trying to lure them back under the law. Where's your high priest? You haven't got a high priest like them Liverpool fans singing the words. Where's your European cup? We haven't got one, but they did have a high priest. You see? But that's what people, you haven't got this, you haven't got that, you don't do this, you don't. Yes, we do. But they can't see it. They can't see it. Anyway, the writer says it's the whole point, and I believe him. We do have a high priest. And our high priest is sat down at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. That is so important. I mean, the temple was gorgeous, you know. It was really splendid, magnificent building, huge stones, huge. Well, they moved those stones in those days, but it's beyond me, but they did. I remember one of the disciples in the Gospels pointing it out to Jesus. Look at the temple. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it beautiful? You know what Jesus said? The day's coming when not one stone of that temple will be left upon another. It will be wiped out completely, totally destroyed. And you know that we're, we're less than 10 years from that when this book was written. This book was written about 63, 64 AD, 67 to 70 
bang, that was gone. Jerusalem was gone. The Jews were scattered throughout the world. A few years later, just beware about your splendor and your, all the things you put your faith and trust in. It doesn't take very long for it to all be gone. Very important. But at the time of writing, it was indeed magnificent. And do you know what? It had all kinds of furniture on it. in it. It was all prescribed in the Old Testament when they built a, ta a tabernacle in the wilderness. And they transferred the, the thoughts, you know, the ark and the lamps and the, all of those things. There was lots of furniture. But you know what there wasn't? In the temple, there was not a chair. There was nowhere to sit. I hate it when there's nowhere to sit down. I mean, I'll sit on the floor, me first, because my legs get tired, or a wall, or anything. But there was no chairs in the tabernacle, and they weren't allowed. You couldn't sit on the floor in there. You'd be dead. The priest had to go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. The priest was into the, the holiest of all, the most holy place. And he had a rope tied around his leg. Right? And they let him in and let the rope go. And if he died, if God struck him dead, he'd have to pull him out with the rope. And he was only in there 15 minutes. One day in the year, that was it. And there was nowhere to sit down. There wouldn't have been time, would there, anyway, to sit down. But you know what the Bible says about Jesus? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. You think, well, that's just a, just a throwaway line. It's not significant. It's very significant because they didn't sit down for a purpose. They didn't sit down because the work was never finished. They didn't sit down because there was always somebody else to come after them, right? And, and the sacrifices had to be made again and again and again, day after day, week after week, year after year. The job was never done. The sins were never forgiven. They were covered. But when Jesus hung on the cross and gave his life, he said, on the cross, it is finished. And he went to heaven, to the real tabernacle, and sat down. Because it's finished, it's done, it's over. Hallelujah. Yes, the work was finished. And it says in verse 3, since every high priest is required to offer gifts, and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. But they'd sacrificed, I don't know, maybe thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of bulls and goats and lambs down. That woman would go mad, wouldn't she, that Facebook girl? She'd be up, right up in arms at her, right? All the time, it was just the cover, sprinkling blood on the altar. Nobody was really, really deeply inside forgiven their sins. Okay, you're all right for another few days or another year, whatever it was, whichever offering it was, they're all different and you have to look into that separately. But it was temporary. It was always temporary. But you know what? Jesus replaced that old covenant, but he didn't do it without first a man, a human being, had to be found to play a part in a covenant. Because a covenant is between two people. I can't just make a covenant with you if you don't agree. We have to agree. If I cut myself, and I want to mingle my blood with you. You have to cut yourself. And we mingle them together. And then we plant a tree together. And then we walk over water. Or whatever it was that they did. They did all sorts of stuff like that. But the covenant was between two. Not between one. 
and he replaced it. Hundreds of years before the law was ever given, God found a man who would make that new covenant possible. Hundreds of years before Moses, he found a man. He was called Abraham. He asked Abraham to take his only son. And he said, no, no, Abraham had another son. Yeah, but God says, take your son, your only son in the Bible. So this is the only begotten son that God recognizes. And he's called Isaac. And he says, take Isaac and sacrifice him in a place that I will show you. Now, that's the most difficult thing a man could do. I would say God first and family second, business third, yeah? But even so, if God, even though he's first, says to me, I want you to take your Joshua to a place that I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him there. Whoa, what an ask. But God asked that. But I do it. But Abraham said, God has promised that through this son, I will have descendants as many as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heaven. Now he wants me to kill him. I don't know how he's going to do this. I believe God and therefore I will obey God. Believing and obeying are really quite close together. You can say you believe, but if you don't obey, let's face it, you, you really don't believe, do you? You're just pretending. Okay, so in Genesis 22, 6, it says, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. He made him carry all the heavy wood up, up the mountain. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham. He's on the way up the hill. And he said, My father, here I am, my son. Look, he said, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. That's where we get the name Jehovah Jireh. You know the song, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. It means God will provide. Yahweh Yireh is the way it would have been said then. But that's where we get it. And that's what prompted Paul to write in the book of Romans, at chapter 8, verse 32, since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? So that's Jehovah Jireh. He gave his son. Why would he withhold little things from us when we ask him? Why would he give us a scorpion when we ask for an egg? Why? He wouldn't. Why would he withhold the Holy Spirit for us when we ask? Why? He wouldn't. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, but you are a believer, today's the day. It's another time to repent because you're supposed to receive the Holy Spirit as part of the, part of the, the game. You know, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe, be baptized and receive. Anyway, that's another story. Come to me at the end and we'll baptize you if you're not baptized and we'll get you baptized in the Holy Ghost if you're not baptized in the Holy Ghost. But the question you've got to ask yourself is, if he's Jehovah Jireh, is he my provider today? Or am I looking to another? Am I looking to my employer? Or am I looking to the government? Is he my source or is man my source it's a question that you've got to ask. 
Because if God's not your source, whoever is your source will hold you. They'll control you. They'll worry you at the very least, but they'll probably control you in worse means than that. Anyway, Jesus, our high priest, offered the sacrifice. Guess what the sacrifice was? His own self. He's the high priest, and he's also the sacrifice for our sins. And when he hung there on the cross, he said seven different things. We ain't going into them now, but he's the last one. It is finished. It's finished. It's enough. Jesus did it all. There's no more need, and there never will be any more need of another sacrifice. Jesus did it all. The Jews, the Jews in the earthly temple, they didn't get that. They were still sacrificing. When these Hebrews were being written to, they were still sacrificing. They were still stuck in their Old Testament religious ways and its rituals. And though it was glorious, at least to look at, and it seemed that some of the Jewish Christians were, were drawn towards it too, and, and I can understand why. It's easy to understand because they were being persecuted, you know, they were being ridiculed. They probably lost their jobs, many of them. Some of them, they lost their families. Their families cast them out. They still do to this day. They still do. You say, I, I believe in Jesus. Oh, you're dead to me. That's what the families say to them. Not just the Jews. Other, other people do that too. And they thought it was glorious. But it wasn't glorious. It was just a big show. But whatever the ridicule, whatever the persecution, whatever the difficulty... Whatever happens to us going back is not an option. There ain't no excuse. It's not an option. It's no difficult, different today, is it? Many people proclaim Christ today. In some countries of the world, they suffer imprisonment. Sometimes they're killed. In India, they're killed. In Nigeria, they're being killed. They're being captured. They take the children away. The little girls take them away. Because for what reason? No other than that they believe that Jesus is the Lord that's it. That's the crime. Even in this country now, we think this country's a holy country, but people are arrested here for preaching in the streets. In more recent times, people have been arrested just for silently praying in the streets. What are you doing? I'm just praying, but quietly. I'm not saying anything. I'm not troubling anybody. I'm just here in the presence of God, praying. Arrested. Carted off to prison in England. Can you believe it? You better believe it. It's true. Yeah, so the temptation to weaken is there and it's there for all of them in the, in the book of Hebrews and it's there for us. The temptation to return to the old ways was great and some of them were succumbing to it, hence the, the, the sermon or the, or the writing. Maybe the old ways were safer. And to be fair, looking at that temple, it was magnificent then. Wouldn't have been much good 10 years later, but it was magnificent then. And the law made it plain. It's obvious. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And Moses never said anything about priests coming from that tribe. So how could he be a priest? But the offering wasn't offered in the temple, was it? Look where the offering was actually, truthfully, genuinely offered. Verse 4. If he, Jesus, were here on earth, he would not even be a priest. Since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that's only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. 
And when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. He said, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. That's Exodus 25, 40. So as magnificent as the temple was, it was a poor representation of the original. It's, I went into somebody's house the other day and he had a picture by Canaletto on the walls. Nice St. Mark's Venice. Lovely. And uh, I said, that's a nice picture. She said, yeah, I know, but it's not the original. So, well, I knew it wouldn't be the original. The original's worth millions, you know. I knew that, but it's still a nice picture. Yeah. And there's lots of copies, isn't there? But there's only one original, you know. And uh, that kind of letter wasn't it. But anyway, that temple wasn't it either. Even the tabernacle, as, as much as about 30 chapters dedicated in the book of Exodus to the building of this tabernacle. And it's beautiful, and it's all got meaning, every bit of it. But it's still just a copy and a shadow. The original's in heaven. And Moses got to see it, and God showed it to him. How? What a privilege. What a privilege. There is a real tabernacle. One day, if you belong to Jesus, you're going to see it. You'll get there. And I, I like traveling, me and Steffi. We like traveling. We go places, you know. We went to Cyprus once. And we went all the places in, in the Bible where it says Paul was. There's a big rock there where they reckon they tied Paul to it and gave him 60 lashes or something. And it, it's actually a plaque that says that. We, we just wanted to see where Paul had been. Because Jesus didn't go to Cyprus, did he? But Paul did. And, and we wanted to see it. We like that. So when I get to heaven... Hey, let's go and see the tabernacle. Let's try and go meet Abraham. It's probably a cue for Abraham, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait, you know. We'll see them and we'll, we'll know them and we'll be with them and we'll be part of them. They're ours. They're our brothers and our sisters and our, oh, man, isn't it wonderful? But the priests had to make an offering, it says, for their own sins, but Jesus made an offer for, for the sins of the pit ram. Now, the priest's offerings... They had to make for themselves because why? They were all sinners. The priests, they were all sinners. Oh no, they were holy men. No, they weren't. They were all corrupt. In fact, some of them were there when they were talking about crucifying Jesus. They were there shouting with the rest of them, crucify him, crucify him. These are the priests. Verse six, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. But now our high priest has been given a ministry that's far superior to mine and to the old priesthood. For he's one who mediates for us. He mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant, it says, had been faultless, then there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault, what did he find fault with? You haven't got a Bible in front of you, have you? You have, good girl. He says he found fault with the people. He found fault with the people, right? There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the old covenant. The thing that's wrong with the old covenant is me. And you, us, we couldn't keep it. That's it. There was nothing wrong with it. Anyway, carries on in verse 7. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant, a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like 
the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to that covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But in this new covenant I will make, listen, this is your covenant. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel, but it's with us, it's with the whole world. This is the covenant that I will make, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbours, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I'll forgive. I'll forgive their wickedness. And I will never again remember their sins. And when God speaks of a new covenant, it means that the old one is obsolete. It's now out of date. It will soon disappear. But let's go back. This is our covenant and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. You know, six or seven years later, that temple was gone, completely destroyed. Not one stone left upon another as Jesus prophesied 38 years earlier, actually. 38 years, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt before they went into the promised land. I know it says 40, but if you read Deuteronomy 2, 40 is just a round number to make us all feel good. It was actually 38. And it was 38 years from Jesus' crucifixion to the time that Jerusalem was destroyed. And they went back into the wilderness for 2,000 years. All the priests were scattered. All the Jews were scattered. All the Christians, who mainly were Jews back then, who had been converted, were scattered with them. But God's plan was good. God's plan was, I'll scatter them all over the world and they'll carry the gospel to the furthest ends of the world. They'll carry the gospel to America and Africa and, and Asia and, and England. God's plan was good. And 2,000 years later, the Jews are coming back. And the Christians, well, we seem to be being beaten, but we ain't being beaten. The church is the most powerful force on earth. No matter what the left tell you, the wokies and all those people, forget what they say. We're in charge on this earth. We're ruling and reigning with Jesus. But we've got to be powerful. And that's where the problem is. Right now, a lot of us are not. Verse 6. But now, Jesus, our priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. So if God made the first covenant, right? If God made the first covenant, which he did do, didn't he? God made it. Surely it would have been faultless, right? But it wasn't faultless. It was, we weren't and we couldn't keep it. That's basically what happened. Cutting the long story short because that's what I need to do right now. But you know what? We've got our own laws, Christians, We've made our own laws up a lot of the time. A lot of the time, we're supposed to be New Testament Christians, but we're living in an Old Testament world, right? Do this, don't do that. Touch not, taste not, handle not. That's who we are quite often. Powerless, weak. That's why the world's blowing smoke in our faces. That's why the world's condemning us at every turn. That's why the world's saying, you do this and you do that, and where's your high priest and all of that, right? 
There are those who once followed God who have slowly slipped away into the ways of the world and now they live like the world. They still claim to be Christians. They still think, well, I'm going to heaven. And probably they are. But they don't live that way. And they've no fellowship. There's no true fellowship with God. And that's what Paul wrote to Timothy about. He said, this is in Timothy's second letter. He said, know this, that in the last days, that's now, we're in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders. These are all Christians he's talking about. Without self-control, brutal despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And now listen, having a form of godliness but denying its power. He's talking to Christians. I'm not saying he's talking to you. Only you can know that. And only I can know that. But if I fit that list, I better repent. I better move on. And that's what he's saying to the Hebrews. If you fit that list, wake up. Praise the Lord. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And that's a constant attack on the people of faith. Christianity has been ridiculed and attacked all over the world, in the courtrooms, everywhere. In countries like Great Britain and the United States, which once bowed the knee to the Lord, now bow the knee to false gods, foreign gods. We're in the last days. Jesus prophesied about them. We should have expected them. The old covenant hasn't got the answer. The old covenant has no answer to the onslaught or the temptations to go along with it and to fall into sin. But Jesus, our high priest, is a mediator of a new and better covenant. And this is what he says. I will make, God says I'll make it. You can't make it. He's made it. This is a new covenant I will make with the people in that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Paul's quoting the Old Testament again over 500 years before Jesus. Jeremiah wrote that. They'd been given the law on tablets of stone. Now it was written on scrolls. God says, I don't want it on scrolls anymore. I don't want it on tablets of stone anymore. Give me your heart and I'll write on it. That's what he's saying. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. And all they have to do is trust that I'll do it. And I'll be their God and they will be my people. And the difference between the old covenant and the new is this. The old makes its demands but provides no power to keep it. The new covenant provides the power to live right with God. The old highlights man's sins and his failings. The new delivers from the penalty of sin and gives man power over sin. The new covenant requires one thing. God wants to write on our hearts. What he requires is that you give him your heart. He won't give it him. He won't write on it. He ain't going to force you. But you give him your heart. Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know you can't keep the law. You do, I do. If we know we can't keep the law, if we know that we're sinners, we have to know that we need a saviour. And that means to be born again. Most people know they're sinners, but most people don't care. 
They don't want to stop being sinners. Quite enjoy it, actually, sin. One day, I might, I, might, I might go that route eventually. Well, today's the day because tomorrow may not exist. And that's the, the first step. You know you're a sinner. The second step is you're sorry. Are you sorry enough to stop? You think, well, I'm kind of sorry, but I don't know if you I'm not sure I want to stop. I couldn't stop anyway. I don't have the power to stop. It's got such a hold of me, this sin. If you'll meet God in repentance, and that means confess to God that you are a sinner and actually be sorry enough in your heart and want to stop, he'll meet you where you are and he'll give you the power to stop. He'll give you the power. It means confess to God you're a sinner and I want you to help me. I need you as a saviour. And he'll meet you. But you've got to give him your heart. Well, I said that once already. If you don't give him your heart, he can't take it. He's not going to steal it. It's your choice. Give him your heart. There's a song we sing. Lord, I give you my heart. You know that one? I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take. Every moment I'm awake. Lord, have your way in me. And it's only you can say that. No one else can say that for you. And I don't care if you've been going to church for years and years and years. If you've not said that, I meant it in your heart. Today's the day. This is Resurrection Sunday. You can start a whole new life today. A life filled with peace. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. All sorts of things have gone around me in this last few weeks, but some of them have rattled me, I'll be honest. But overall, I come through with peace. I can say, Master, the tempest is raging. The billows are tossing high. And Jesus says, peace, be still. Peace with God. If your heart's beating fast right now, you think, he's talking to me. I don't know. I'm on the edge. Can I do this? Today's the day of salvation. It's time to give your heart to God. It's time to receive Jesus as your saviour and your high priest. And if you've done that or you want to do that right now, either come to me. I'm not going to do out all the altar calls and that because I've, I've gone over the past the time. That's, that's not, this is eternal time we're on now. But I, I want you to be able to do it. Jesus did it on a cross. He hung on a cross naked and, and everybody looked at him. But I'll, I'll give you an easy time. Just come to me or come to somebody right next to you and say, He's talking to me. I need to give my heart to Jesus right now on this resurrection morning. Take that step of faith and do it. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I want to just say thank you for resurrection day. That's just what we're calling it, Lord. Every day is a resurrection for us. Every day you're alive in our lives, and we want to say thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you'll change us from glory into glory. You'll move us on in Jesus' name. Move us on today, Lord. Move us on. Amen.